Hello and welcome to another episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie, brought to you by Killer Podcasts and Evergreen Podcasts Network. I'm the titular Sean. And I'm the very titular Carrie. It's the show that takes you inside the unbelievable, the unexplainable, the macabre, and the bizarre, tries to find an answer. Hi, Caroline. Hi, Sean. Don't laugh at my intro. I, I try as hard as I can over here. <laughs> I know you do. Um, we have been really hyped about this series, really excited. So uh, for those who haven't been checking in with us over the last couple of weeks, tell our listeners what we're talking about uh, today and for the rest of August. Yes. Yeah, so hello again, listeners. You've waited patiently for us to begin this series after last week off. We had some family road tripping and research preparation going on, but we are back and it's time to get into it. This August, we'll be launching a likely four-part investigation into the infamous Manson family murders. Now, if you listen to the show and have any interest in true crime, it's about a 99% guarantee that you know who Charles Manson is and have heard of the helter-skelter murders committed by his family cult in the summer of 1969. Yeah, you've seen the picture of him looking all crazy with the swastika carved into his forehead. Well, the picture of him looking all crazy really doesn't narrow it down. They all, because they all look that way? Yeah, and even Swastika, I mean, he had that thing there for most of his life. Yeah, he hasn't managed his mental health well, Charlie. Mm-hmm. Charles Manson was an American criminal, cult leader, and sometime musician who led the Manson family cult, a collection of hippie types that would eventually be directed to commit a series of brutal murders in the area of Los Angeles, California, at the end of the 1960s. Uh, Carrie, you just tell me when the appropriate time is to talk about the Mr. Show sketch with <laughs> Charles Manson. Not yet, but soon. <laughs> okay. Uh, these murders included the particularly horrific killings of actress Sharon Tate and several of her famous friends at her home in the posh area of Benedict Canyon near L.A. Yeah, I'm glad I didn't bring up that comedy sketch before that. Yeah. Though Manson was not actually present at this specific crime, he had directed followers to commit it, and he, along with those found guilty of perpetrating the murder, would be sentenced to life in prison soon afterward. However, just how much Manson was involved in the murders and how much they were related to his alleged belief in a coming race war predicted by the Beatles' White Album is a subject of much debate to this day, despite Manson's death back in 2017. Lovely Rita, race warrior. Very nice, Sean. Is that, is that anything? I don't think so. <laughs> Throughout this series, we'll explore the life of Charles Manson, the frustrated artistic dreams that led him to creating a cult capable of murder, the killings themselves, and the shocking trial that would result in much of the group being convicted of multiple murders. Along the way, we'll discuss Manson's impact on the perception of the late 1960s and the hippie movement and the impact of the movement on him, his strange entwinement with the famous musical group The Beach Boys, his alleged beliefs that the Beatles were talking to him through coded song lyrics, and how it all culminated in the string of murders that some see as the symbolic end of the summer of love and the innocence of the hippie culture. Our main sources for this series are the books Manson, The Life and Times of Charles Manson by Jeff Gwynn, and of course, Helter Skelter, The True Story of the Manson Murders by Vincent Bugliosi and Kurt Gentry. 
Both offer a lot of information on their subjects, though the latter book has attracted some controversy in recent years due to its being written by the prosecutor in Manson's case, Bugliosi. And some people think that he had certain motivations for some of the things he wrote. So we'll certainly discuss the disputed evidence, but it's important to present what has become, or at least was, the main theory regarding the motives behind the infamous murders. Oh, I didn't even know the race war thing had uh, changed over the years. Some some people think that it's not as cut and dry as Bugliosi at least made it out to be. Okay. We'll also reference The Family by Ed Sanders, Chaos, Charles Manson, The CIA, and The Secret History of the 60s by Tom O'Neill with Dan Piepenberg, Piepenbring, sorry, Piepenbring. Uh, sorry, Dan. Sorry, Dan. Uh, I, I bet your, your work is good. Um, and the podcast, You Must Remember Manson, which is kind of a sub show of the excellent Hollywood history anthology, You Must Remember This, one of my favorite shows hosted by the wonderful Karina Longworth. As you can see, this case has garnered a ton of coverage and involves a ton of detail, though there are some sort of interesting blank spots that people have to fill in. And this is why we had to get really fully ready to present this series to you. I can't wait to hear your take and what all of your, um, I'm going to say, brain-melting work uh, has, yeah. has come to. Yeah. So here we are. Let's dive in with the first part of our series on the Manson family murders, the origins of Charles Manson, and how this difficult child and frustrated musician became the monster that would eventually be responsible for nearly a dozen deaths. All right, so here we go. Summer of 69. Nope, 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 not yet. That's going to be like a while from now. <laughs> this episode is, it starts in the 30s. Okay, so Charles Mills Maddox was born into already difficult circumstances on November 12th, 1934. His mother, Ada Kathleen Maddox, was the 15-year-old daughter of devoutly fundamentalist middle-class couple Charlie and Nancy Maddox. The elder Charlie died suddenly on October 1931 of pneumonia, and ever since that point, the family had slowly collapsed into deaths and disarray, leading matriarch Nancy to believe that God was now determined to take away all the happiness once bestowed upon her. And the arrival of little Charlie would only add to that perception. Nancy's two youngest children, Luther and Kathleen, seem to have little interest in leading godly lives, despite Nancy's good example and constant urging. <laughs> Kathleen, in particular, simply wanted to have fun. She was a young teen. And uh, in the early 30s, the epitome of fun to young teenagers was dancing. I'm going to go out dancing. Sure, do the bunny hop or whatever. Uh, yeah, the jitterbug. <laughs> Of course, dancing was seen as sinful, uh, maybe not in like the footloose way, but you know, it's not something you were going to do if you were leaving a church life, but that didn't stop Kathleen. She began sneaking out from her home in Ashland, Kentucky to over the bridge into Ohio, where in the town of Ironton, she found clubs and, um, and in these clubs, the music was loud and the prospective dance partners were plentiful. So she's, she's boy crazy. She's a kid. She's she's 15, you know, a sophomore in high school. Mm -hmm. At one of these clubs, she met Colonel Scott. Colonel was his given name. No. Not his rank, but he would let many people, including Kathleen, think that he was actually an army colonel. 
It would he people would call him the colonel probably. Well, just be like they would talk to him like he was in the army, and he would not dissuade them of that notion. Right, but then they just think they don't know his first name, or maybe maybe they're just keeping things real formal. A colonel, colonel was not, but rather a ne'er do well petty criminal who partook in a variety of scams with his brother Darwin. Colonel and Darwin. Yeah. Now, where's that uh, uh, BBC period? drama that sounds fun it's tough kathleen didn't see this criminal side of colonel though not at first what she saw was a strapping older handsome guy who talked smooth and charmed hard he was 23 and married though the former didn't bother kathleen and the latter wasn't known to her would it have bothered yeah i guess it would have she's a she's a good girl yeah i guess she just wants to dance hmm Though the girl was only 15, Scott treated Kathleen to drinks, danced with her, and met up with her regularly, of course, secretly. These meetings resulted in Kathleen's pregnancy in the spring of 1934. Yeah, I saw this this coming. Yeah. When she told Scott, he responded that, oh, shoot, he had just been called away on military business, but he'd return soon to sort everything out. So she does think he's a colonel yes, of some kind. Yes, and he has perpetrated that. Um... Scott was gone for several months before the young Kathleen realized that he just had no intention of having further contact with her, let alone marrying her and legitimizing their union and the child growing in her belly. Nancy, of course, was horrified by the teen pregnancy under her roof, but props to her. Despite her religiosity, she did not disown her daughter. She just informed her that this would be a new start for Kathleen and this baby, and the baby would be raised in the church. This sounds like Carrie's mom a little bit, though. Not my mom. No, no, no. Carrie White from Stephen King's Carrie. Yes, of course. Yeah, Carrie White's mom. (laughs) Kathleen was still a turbulent young teenager, however, and her anger at Scott's abandonment spun wildly into a determination to make him jealous and also find a man to take care of her and her unborn child. She found her candidate in William Manson. Oh, I thought it was going to be Lieutenant Garber from down the street. (laughs) No. Little is known about the man who would give Charlie his infamous surname. He is known to have been born in 1909 in West Virginia, and he died 52 years later in California. We don't know how William and Kathleen met, but they did, and on, and on August 21st, a marriage license was issued to the pair. Let's have a marriage. Let's have a marriage license. <laughs> mm-hmm. The groom's age was correctly listed as 25. However, Kathleen, still 15 was listed as 21, likely to circumvent the need for Nancy to give her permission for the union. Yeah, and because he doesn't want that uh, visit from Chris, uh, what's his name? Take a seat. Oh, yes. Yeah, that would be bad. They married, and baby Charlie, named after his grandfather, who had passed away, was born on November 12th, 1934. William Manson was listed as the biological father on the birth certificate, and it's unclear whether he knew at the time that little Charlie was not his, or whether he believed that he had indeed sired the boy. Oh, I was under the impression she was, like, pretty pregnant by the time... She's still 15, so this has all taken place in a year, so she might have been able to get away with it, like, oh, he's real premature, you know? I know he's 10 pounds, but... Soon after Charlie's birth, his mother had her 16th birthday. 
Kathleen did want to be a good mother to Charlie, but she was still a kid herself, and she wanted to have a good time, too. She wasn't fully mature yet. Is this Casey Anthony syndrome? No, no. And I th- I think it's it's definitely bad, but I think it's presented as worse in, like, general urban legend colloquialism when it comes to Charles Manson's life. Because um, he did have... Some people that cared about him. Nancy was always there. Um, Kathleen would disappear for t- for days at a time with her brother Luther, and the pair began running scams similar to those perpetrated by Colonel and Darwin Scott. This was more than enough for William Manson to deal with, and on April 30th, 1937, the court ruled in favor of his request for divorce from Kathleen, ah. who was charged with gross neglect of duty. The decree specified that there were no children of issue from this marriage, meaning that William not only recognized Charlie was not his biological son by this point, but he also would no longer be legally obligated to provide for the now toddler-aged Charlie. Mm -hmm. All that Charlie would get from William in the long run would be his last name. Kathleen, for her part, would go right on to Kentucky and filed a bastardy suit against Colonel Scott, who she had finally tracked down. That's a crime? Uh, yeah. Uh, parental neglect, I guess. Yeah. Bastardy. Yeah. The, t- the court ruled in Kathleen's favor here, but aside from the initial judgment of $25, she never saw another cent in child support from Scott. After this, Kathleen and Charlie would bounce around from Nancy's home in Ashland to her sister Glenna's house in North Charleston. It was here in 1938 where a newspaper announcement was issued stating that Kathleen was engaged to a James Lewis Roby, though nothing much more is known about the man and their union aside from the fact that he was also a minor criminal, which seems to have been her type. <laughs> she likes the bad boys. Yeah. Uh, how old is Charlie at this point? Um, couple years. But the pair never married, and we never hear from him again. Um, Sure, he's not going to be paying child support. Right. It's here we'll also mention the popular legend that young Charlie was once traded to a waitress by Kathleen for a pitcher of beer. Though aside from random mentions of a family member attesting to the story and some articles and lists I found, there's nothing concrete that I could find to back up this story. So at least there's that in Kathleen's favor. But would Charles Manson lie? (laughs) Oh, he lie. He lie. Long time. (laughs) A big fork in the road of little Charlie Manson's life came on August 1st, 1939, when Kathleen would be arrested for the first time. To make a long story short, Kathleen and her brother Luther were caught in the act of running one of their petty scams against a man named Frank Martin. After a long day and night of partying and drinking, Luther robbed Martin by pretending the ketchup bottle he had to the back of his neck was a gun and threatening to kill him unless Martin forked over his wallet. He then hit Martin over the head with the bottle and the siblings drove off in Frank's stolen Packard. As the victim was still alive and knew exactly who the perpetrators were, the assault and robbery case was solved within hours. And after a brief trial a couple months later, Luther Maddox was found guilty of armed robbery and sentenced to 10 years in prison. Kathleen was found guilty of unarmed robbery and sentenced to five years. Charlie would now be separated from his only parent for the most formative years of his young life. Hmm. 
Charlie was sent to live with his aunt Glenna, Uncle Bill, and eight-year-old cousin Joanne. Oh, in, they sound nice. Yes. In McMeachin, I think it is. McMechan? McMeachin. I'm going to say McMeachin, West Virginia. I support you. <laughs> and this was so he would be close to the Moundsville Penitentiary his mother would be incarcerated at for frequent visits. It was in McMeachin that it started to become clear that not only did Charlie not fit in with his family nor the other residents of McMeachin, but he was overall just a shitty little kid. (laughs) Now, of course, we can argue a mix of nature and nurture here informing Charlie's actions and his personality. He's definitely in a tough situation. Mm -hmm. And certainly his earliest years were not easy on a developing child. But he took those difficulties and um, he ran with them. He really ran with them. <laughs> he ran. He ran hard. Charlie was small. Uh, he would remain kind of small and scrawny for the rest of his life. At this point, he was so small that he resembled a toddler more than the other kids his age. He might or, prefer scrappy. <laughs> yes. Um, even at the young age of five, which he would be entering public school, he lied about everything. And when he inevitably got in trouble for these lies because he wasn't very good at lying or any of the other hijinks he got up to, he would always blame someone else for his actions and never took accountability. He was also, as Jeff Gwynn puts it, obsessed with being the center of attention, which would obviously follow into his adult years. His cousin Joanne said that even as a, as a young child, there was never anything happy about her cousin and he never did anything that was good. He's five. (laughs) Despite being a little jerk, Charlie was also dealing with a lot, and it seems his visits to see his mother at the penitentiary were pretty traumatizing for the child. Also, I don't know, how can, you can't have that attitude towards a child. Well, she was also a child at the time, Mm -hmm. so, I don't know. He never did It gets worse between them. (laughs) One particular incident stands out about Charlie's youngest school days and was recalled even 70 years later by his living McMeachin classmates. Charlie had been placed in the first grade class of one Mrs. Varner, who was still referred to with fear by elderly adults decades (laughs) after her death. Just uh, clutching the phantom pains in their knuckles. Yes. Varner, quote, eviscerated students with words. Again, her exact classroom vocabulary isn't precisely recalled, only that she instinctively knew how to discover and verbally exploit children's greatest insecurities, (laughs) which is something that Charlie would learn himself to do. I was going to say, it's something that children are generally good at. Mm. In this incident in November 1939, shortly after Charlie turned five and began school, Charlie was placed in the last seat of the last row of the class where she would um, place her least favorite student and the inevitable target of her cruelty. During his very first day of school, Varner continually bullied him, likely mentioning his imprisoned mother. Of course, people couldn't recollect the exact words uh, 70 years later. But uh, the boy ran home crying. But Uncle Bill was not exactly the guy to provide comfort in this kind of situation. Uh, Oh, no? Yes. In fact, despite being remembered generally as tough but fair by daughter Joanne, Charlie's hysterics made Bill determined that his scrawny nephew would never act like a sissy again. Uh Uh-huh. So, in a decision that seems out of a how-to-make-a-serial-killer textbook, 
The next day, Bill forced Charlie to put on one of Joanne's dresses and to attend school in the girly outfit, marching him right back into Mrs. Varner's classroom. Well, I hope he got right into the fraternity after after he got through this. Hmm. Quote, Charlie had to wear Joanne's baggy dress all day. As Bill intended, he never forgot it. Later in life, Charlie exaggerated or lied outright about almost everything in his troubled childhood, trying to make bad experiences sound even worse. But he told the truth about being forced by his uncle to wear a dress to school. No embellishment was necessary. Mm. This obvious cruelty resulted in Charlie returning the same behavior in kind to his family, though certainly at more innocent targets. One day, a boy was slapping the shit out of Charlie when the older Joanne, not liking her cousin but feeling the need to protect him, intervened. The boy slapped her too, but she bit him hard, and he ran away to tattle to a teacher. When the elder asked the normally well-behaved Joanne why she had done such a thing, the girl explained that she was only defending her cousin from the bigger boy. However, when Charlie was asked to corroborate the events, he claimed he didn't know anything about it. (laughs) And this was even though she was trying to help him. Why are you lying about this? Mm -hmm. So from then on, Joanne let Charlie fight his own battles, rightfully enough. And he probably said something to get slapped by that kid in the first place. Yeah, of course. The troubled child became fascinated with knives and sharp objects. These are good signs. Good signs, good signs, good signs. He enjoyed handling guns, which Uncle Bill felt was at least normal for a growing boy. Did he have any undue head trauma? I know that's a common thing. Oh, I wouldn't be surprised. There was nothing concrete, but I wouldn't be surprised. Above anything else, Charlie fell in love with music, and that love would follow him to the end of his days. Charlie would sit down at the family piano and pick out songs by ear, playing and singing for hours with uh, what surprised his family to be quite a nice voice. And we'll get back to his love of music uh, closer to the end of the episode. When we talk about Dennis Wilson? Uh, That'll be next episode. Okay. Uh, Kathleen was released from prison on parole for good behavior after serving three years of her sentence. And Charlie would refer to the first weeks with his mother home again as the happiest days of his life. But those days were not to last, and Kathleen was soon to find that her son had become someone who, above anything else, enjoyed manipulating those around him, especially women, and who was only interested in people insofar as what they were able to do for him. So a psychopath. Yes, a super narcissist. After the break, we'll discuss the troubled teenage and young adult years of Charles Manson, his time in youth detention facilities and adult prisons, and eventually follow him to San Francisco at the height of the hippie movement, where next week we'll explore the seeds of Charlie's creation of the Manson family cult. Something is creeping in, don't follow it down. Let me introduce you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. The type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy. 
And you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. She stole from my son, who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things, actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S. Welcome back. When last we left you, Charles Manson was in the middle of a very troubled childhood. Mm-hmm. Um, bad situations, being made to wear a dress, loves knives, uh, mother's in prison for um, uh, robbing someone with a ketchup bottle. Mm-hmm. Um, you get armed robbery for a ketchup bottle. Huh? She got unarmed, but he presented it like a gun. So that made the dis- the difference. You know, Frank Martin believed he was being threatened with a gun. Well, so I think that's the important part. Well, there you go, kids. The more you know... <laughs> Don't yep. pretend to threaten people with a gun, and don't do it with a gun. Yeah, don't, don't threaten people. Don't do it Be either nice. way. Don't do robberies. Yeah, don't, don't rob. Uh, because then you end up in prison, you can't see your kid, and he turns into Charles Manson. So, <laughs> he, he has turned into Charles Manson. He's Carrie. getting there. And uh, I believe that we left off as as our our, uh, our troubled little boy was ready to start uh, moving cross country. Yeah. So becoming increasingly depressed and desperate, his mother Kathleen was arrested once again on charges of grand larceny, though no details are known about the situation other that the charges were dropped. Oddly, stealing ketchup bottles. (laughs) It's popular speculation that in the time soon after her release from prison, Kathleen began, began operating as a sex worker. But there are no records of her being arrested or charged with solicitation anywhere in the country, so we can't say whether or not that's true. It's just speculation because she's a woman and didn't hold straight jobs very often. Yeah, and she was, you know, involved with shady people for a while, transitory, you know. She uh, developed a drinking problem, and she began to search desperately for another husband to support her and her unruly child. I'm not even sure if she's even 20 yet. So in the summer of 1943, Kathleen attempted to turn her life around, marking a year after her release from prison by getting sober and attending Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. It was here that she met Lewis Cavender Jr., a 27-year-old just out of the army who was trying to get straightened out, too. Good guy, good guy, good guy, good guy. The pair married in August 1943 when Charlie was nine years old. Unfortunately, while Kathleen got her drinking under control, Lewis never did. Ah. He couldn't hang on to a job as a result of this, and so Kathleen was forced to keep working to provide for the family. And by working, you mean robbing people in diners and stuff? No, she's, she's straightening out. She's doing honest work. Charlie's behavior got worse and worse, and he began stealing small items, blaming someone else when... Uh, he was inevitably caught. Uh, it was you. <laughs> yeah, the policeman. New stepfather Lewis would yell at the child even when he hadn't done anything wrong. So in Charlie's mind, he might as well make the outbursts worth it and do something deserving of reprimand. Kathleen became more and more fearful of her son, scared of his, quote, crazy eyes. 
and violent <laughs> tantrums. So those started early. Oh, yeah. Yeah, even in the, the young pictures of Charles Manson you can find, he's got wild-looking eyes. Kathleen didn't know what else to do at this point, so she sought relief and advice from the one person who was always there for her, her mother, Charlie's grandmother, Nancy. It was agreed that the best option for Charlie, and in no small part for the family, too, was for him to go away to a reform school and try to get straightened out. And so Charlie was shipped off to the, I think it's Gibo, uh, G-I-B-A-U-L-T, Gibo. Okay. Gibalt. I don't know. Gibo? Is it a town? What is it? It's the Gibo, Gibo School for oh, Boys. Okay. So I'm going to say Gibo. Gibo School for Boys in Terre Haute um, without even having been told that this was happening until he was about to leave. Oh. They didn't, he didn't know that they were looking for reform schools for him until they found it. And he's on the bus and they're like, we'll see you in <laughs> six months. According to Jeff Gwynn, quote, to hear Charlie tell of it later in life, his mother shipped him off to a virtual Midwestern gulag. But in fact, Gibo was a pleasant, open, no fences or walls, campus. Pupils were accepted from 5th through 10th grade with shop as well as academic courses available. There were sports teams and the boys helped out on a 150-acre farm that provided fresh vegetables for students and faculty. The place was run by priests who required all attendees to be present at daily religious services as well as their regular classes and who demanded good behavior from their students, enforcing the rules with paddlings with a yard long board. Oh, well, uh, well priests would never abuse <laughs> boys, though. So, well, OK, OK, let's just let's just throw them this bone. Corporal punishment was restricted to no more than three swats at a time which is actually kind of strict for the day. And it sounds more reasonable, at least in the context of the area, than you would first perceive when sure. you hear that he's beaten with a board. Three swats. Yeah. Charlie was no doubt beaten many times in these three slap increments, considering that punishment never had any effect on his poor behavior. He just kept on acting out no matter what. You know what? We can only do three at a time, but we are going to do six of them in a row here. <laughs> uh, academic and psychological testing administered by the school resulted in a diagnosis that Charlie had a tendency toward moodiness and a persecution complex. And by the way, I'm using Charlie instead of Charles most of the time because literally everyone and himself refer to him as Charlie. So I'm just going to go with it. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Charlie pursued his criminal passions, running away multiple times from Gibo. He was, he was eventually caught after multiple incidents while attempting a store robbery and was made the responsibility of the courts rather than just Kathleen. He was sent to a he was sent by a judge to Boys Town in Omaha, Nebraska. Four days after he arrived, he and another student named Blackie Nielsen stole a car and drove to Peoria, Illinois, getting their hands on a gun along the way and committing two armed robberies. Charlie was. 13 years old. He learns very fast, you have to say. He's 13 years old. Is Boys Town a, like, uh, like a boys' prison? Like a, uh... It's still a reform school, and there was a movie about it starring Spencer Tracy, I believe, but it's a bit more romanticized. But it's a reform school. It's just a, 
you know, it's another notch. Like maybe they're not growing fresh vegetables at this one, you know. They were just ratcheting up the institutionalization yes. of, of Charlie. Yes. He would eventually go in and out of custody for the next couple of years, eventually being sent to the Indiana Boys School in Plainfield in early 1949. So again, he's going up the ladder in terms of intensity of his reform schools. It's, it's still a school. This one just has barbed wire. Right. It was in this much darker environment uh, compared to Gibeau that Charlie found his usual trusty tactics of lying, intimidating, and manipulating others to get his way suddenly ineffective. Quote, It is undoubtedly true that tiny Charlie was forced into sexual acts by stronger boys. Such experiences led him to develop an almost detached view of rape, whether suffered by himself or others. He said 60 years later, You know, getting raped, they can just wipe that off. I don't feel that someone got violated and it's a terrible thing. I just thought, clean it off. That's all that is. So again, it's nature and nurture. Maybe he was born bad, but bad things happened to him too. Yeah, those are the internalized thoughts of someone who was raped many times as a child. Yes. And, you know, he would also rape repeatedly as a child as well. In constant danger of being beaten or sexually assaulted by the older, bigger boys, it was at the boys' school that Charlie developed his, what would be lifelong, defense mechanism dubbed by himself as the insane game. In an almost animal, instinctual response when finding himself in dangerous situations, Charlie would begin to act out, to to literally make himself appear insane, to convince potential assailants that he was crazy and not worth messing with. So this is all that like, zoops up! Oh, hey. yes. This this would involve screeches, grimaces, flapping his arms, mm. and other extreme mm. facial expressions mm. and gestures. Oh, yeah. You don't know where I'm coming from, Jack. Hey! Yes. So, you know, as Sean is referencing, this behavior is what Charlie became known for in his prison years, especially in video of his parole hearings and and this is where i should mention you should go to youtube and watch that mr show charlie manson manson sketch because it's 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 funny yeah it's just (laughs) it's just lassie but it's charles manson going charlie (laughs) zip zap zip hey yes you don't even know the plan man the insane game wouldn't always work but it often enough did freak out potential aggressors enough for them to back off at least for the time being In October of 1949, Charlie joined six other boys in an escape attempt from the boys' school, and it wasn't his first time trying to break out of that facility or any other, as we know. Though it was the largest mass escape in the school's history, Charlie was easily nabbed in less than 12 hours. He tried again to escape in February 1951, and because this attempt included the federal crime of driving a stolen vehicle across state lines, he and the other two boys that were with him were sentenced to the National Training School for Boys in Washington, D.C. One more ratchet up. And he was to remain there until turning 21. Oh, what? Boys are boys, just boys being boys crossing state lines in a stolen vehicle. Just before his first parole hearing at the school in 1952, Charlie was caught sodomizing another boy while holding a razor blade to his victim's throat. At the training school, rape was considered an offense second only to murder. And so Charlie not only lost his chance at parole, obviously, but was immediately transferred to the Federal Reformatory in Petersburg, Virginia. 
He was now 17 years old. And this is maximum security for kids. Uh, yeah, pretty much. I, I think this is kind of the apex of where you can go. Over the next several years, Charlie well, incurred but since this is for, the a- for a child. Right, but since this is the apex, I'm sure this reformed him and he was better by the time he got out. Oh, well, okay. Over the next several years, Charlie incurred more rape charges on his record, as well as other serious disciplinary offenses, and eventually ended up in a maximum security reformatory in Chillicoth, Chillicoth, Ohio, to serve out the rest of his time until his 21st birthday. So, uh, you know, somehow they found a worse place, I guess. And, And then he improved. Reformatory authorities who dealt with the worst delinquents in America concluded that Charlie Manson was beyond rehabilitating. However, Charlie had another trick up his sleeve, and you've kind of alluded to it, Sean. Instead of continuing his pattern of cruelty, what is expected of him at the time, he became a model inmate, even earning an award for meritorious service in January 1954. (laughs) The Silver Cross. Said, you want you want insane? I'll show you insane. I'll be so good, it'll be insane. Four months after he uh, earned this award, at age 19, Charlie was released from the reformatory on good behavior to go back and live with his uncle and aunt. They're like, okay, Manson's really starting to scare me. Did you see him mopping before? <laughs> we got to get this guy out of here. Back in McMeachin, he would move between the home of his uncle and aunt, that of his mother Kathleen, who was still trying to salvage her miserable marriage to Lewis, and that of his grandmother Nancy, who was still desperate for Charlie to make a godly life for himself despite everything he had done to that point. In fact, she required him to attend Sunday morning church services every week if he intended to stay with her, and he did. He would work at a local racetrack during this period as well to satisfy the terms of his reformatory school release. Wanted to use that beautiful voice of his in the choir? (laughs) He did sing, but it was at the Nazarene Church that Charlie would learn some of the most important tools he'd later use in the establishment and running of his family cult. Every week, he heard a preacher insist that the Holy Scripture was an unerring document, that women should always be subservient to men, and that in order to achieve salvation, uh, he would have to follow the guidelines of the book of Thessalonians, completely empty yourself by giving up your individuality, pride, and possessions. This would become integral to how Charlie would pull followers further and further into his cult, and interestingly, is also a key way that many cult leaders brainwash their believers. By separating people of their belongings— then of their loved ones, and eventually their very idea of their self, they become, in a way, clean slates ready to be written on in any way that the leader chooses. Brainwashing. Yeah, that's not an accident. No, no. That's on purpose. Right. Charlie was very much set apart and outcast by his fellow Sunday school peers due to his troubled past and strange behavior, but he would eventually find just the people to not only accept him, but worship him. Before then, however, he began dating a probably 15-year-old girl named Rosalie Willis. Like father, like son. Yeah. Uh, This this seems to be an instance of the tale as old as time. A young, sweet, popular girl falling for the bad boy with the checkered past. Not a ton is known about the early relationship, but the pair did get married on November 15th, 1955, and moved into an inexpensive rental soon thereafter, man and wife of 20 and 15. Mm. 
Charlie seems to have tried to settle down a little. Uh, he sought honest work, even made a few friends. He came into ownership of a guitar and was constantly playing the basic chords he knew, strumming and singing along with the music playing on the radio. Rosalie became pregnant, though, and Charlie's feeble attempts to fit in soon drew to a close. He began to fall back on his criminal ways in hopes of scoring extra cash and started to steal cars. Well, you gotta buy baby clothes. I guess. I mean, I I could imagine the stress. And he's like, well, I'm not good at anything, but I I know how to do this. Again, he's not good at it because he keeps getting caught. And he's a bad liar once he gets caught. Right. But he, he thinks he's good at it. After moving out to Los Angeles, California to be closer to Kathleen, who had barely visited him at the training school or been a part of his life in recent years, he was nabbed for driving a stolen car and for having driven the car over state lines, a federal offense. No longer a minor, he was tried as an adult. Hasn't learned that lesson yet. Yeah. Charlie pled with the judge for leniency, and he was ordered to undergo psychiatric testing. The doctor assessing him felt he was a poor choice for probation, but with the incentive of a wife and probable fatherhood, it is possible that he might be able to straighten himself out. This is weird, but uh, he he broke our test. (laughs) He just kept making weird faces and noises. He wouldn't even answer our questions. It it didn't even seem real. It seemed like a a game. It's an insane game. What are you looking at? What am I looking at? What are you looking at? What am I looking at? Catching a serious break, which he would seriously take for granted, Charlie was sentenced to five years probation. Instead of keeping his nose clean and thanking whatever merciful God was out there for his good fortune, he panicked and ran, taking pregnant Rosalie with him to Indianapolis. There, on March 10, 1956, Rosalie gave birth to a son who they named Charles Manson Jr. Strong name. Just four days later, Charlie was taken into custody in Indiana and returned to California, where on April 23rd, his probation was revoked. This is embarrassing. There was no more time or sympathy affording him stints at reform schools or chances at probation. Charlie was about to experience his first hard time, three years at San Pedro's Terminal Island Penitentiary in Los Angeles Harbor. Yeah, the time at the boys' reformatory didn't sound soft. No. No. But this is this is the definition of hard time. But even then, Charlie was catching somewhat of a break. Terminal Island was one of the only a handful of federal prisons intended for low-risk, nonviolent prisoners. A profile. D- why is Charlie there? Well, his his criminal history fit this profile in theory, if not in personal practice. What does that mean? He's a, he was he, only convicted of rapes, theft. rapes in well, prison. He, but I don't think he was charged with any of those because it was to fellow inmates, unfortunately. Oh Jesus! So he's only officially committed larceny. And that's nonviolent. He hasn't done it armed. Well, he has, but he was a kid. So it's weird. It's a weird But he's like wishy-washy. No, he's known to have committed dozens yes. of rapes. Yes. Yes. It's it's not good. It was at Terminal Island where Charlie would encounter his second great inspiration on the path to becoming a cult leader. At the Nazarene Church, Charlie learned how to preach and how to strip followers of everything that made them individual to make them easier to mold in his own image. 
at Terminal Island, he would learn from the resident pimps how to pick out just the right girls, recruit them, and bend them to his will. According to the incarcerated pimps who would become mentors to this apt pupil, quote, you had to know how to pick out just the right girls, the ones with self-image or daddy problems, who'd buy into come-ons from a smooth talker. First, you kept them separated from family and friends. Then you bought them under your control with a judicious combination of affectionate gestures and just enough beating to remind them who was boss. Charlie yearned to be somebody's boss. The veteran pimps cautioned him that it was critical to stay away from women who were completely nuts because then you'd spend all your time propping them up emotionally instead of sending them out on the street to work. You wanted girls who were cracked, but not broken. The trick was to make them love you and fear you at the same time. Charlie listened and learned. So Rosalie and Charlie Jr. began Charlie's Terminal Island imprisonment visiting once a week. Um, The pair had begun to live with Kathleen for support, though she visited her son in prison much less frequently. And then Rosalie just stopped coming at all. Well, he he just wouldn't stop talking about pimping. (laughs) It seemed she found a new beau and disillusioned from the broken promises of a glamorous life in California Charlie had originally offered, retreated back with him to Appalachia with Charlie Jr. in tow. Charlie Sr. received his divorce papers in prison. Rosalie, for her part, had a life of much moving around after her marriage to Charlie, eventually passing away of lung cancer in 2009. The fact that her monstrous ex-husband outlived her by almost 10 years, a last indignity. However, Rosalie's obituary did mention a loving companion in her final years, and also that she enjoyed playing golf, bowling, dancing, playing cards, slot machines, and spending time with her family. However, that family would not include Charlie Jr. He had sadly died of suicide by her death, taking his own life in 1993. He had changed his name to Charles White uh, for understandable reasons, but he could never escape the shadow of his father's evils looming over him, and it apparently troubled him very deeply. Charlie, back at Terminal Island, scored a 121 on an IQ test, despite being semi-illiterate, and this encouraged the prison's officials to try and get Charlie into one of the numerous self-improvement programs available at the facility. Because they also hadn't had a conversation with him? I guess. So Charlie would find his third grade inspiration in the very unlikely form of a man named Dale Carnegie. If you've heard the title or term, How to Win Friends and Influence People, that came from a best-selling book Carnegie wrote, basically functioning as a self-help and business manual. The Dale Carnegie Correspondence Course was one offered in the terminal to the Terminal Island inmates, and its teachings were something that Charlie latched onto immediately. Quote, The first pages of How to Win Friends seemed to formally codify all the instinctive ways Charlie had manipulated people since childhood. It was as though Dale Carnegie not only read Charlie's mind, but recruited him as a disciple by elaborating on Charlie's own thoughts. Everything you or I do springs from two motives, the sex urge and the desire to be great. Begin in a friendly way. The only way on earth to influence the other fellow is to talk about what he wants and show him how to get it. Make the other person feel important. The only way to get the best of an argument is to avoid it. You have to use showmanship. The movies do it, radio does it, and you will have to do it if you want attention. Dramatize your ideas. 
And boy, howdy, would Charlie ever. Well, here's a guy who desperately wants attention. Mm-hmm. After serving nearly two and a half years of his five-year sentence, Charlie was released from Terminal Island and would immediately start attempting to break into the pimping business. He felt so perfectly called to his um, unique talents. He did recruit several young girls and women to become sec- sex workers in his stable, but not many lasted on the streets, and he found it nearly impossible to make a living as a pimp. So he was also bad at this? Yes. Seven months after his release, he was arrested again for forging a U.S. Treasury check at a Ralph's supermarket. Kathleen was horrified that not only had her son apparently tried his hand at pimping, which she had found out about, but he was also becoming a career criminal, something she had, word, she had worked hard to steer her own life away from, and something that Charlie's biological father had been sucked into. Nancy Maddox, um, her mother, Charlie's grandmother, died in July of 1959, adding to the strain on Kathleen and her guilt over the pain she had caused her mother during her criminal pursuits. After a sex worker in Charlie's stable named Leona Ray Musser claimed to be pregnant with his child, a sympathetic deal was struck. Charlie would plead guilty to the forging and the theft charge attached to it would be dropped. Charlie eventually received a 10-year suspended sentence and probation. What did that have to do with the pregnancy? Well, it was just like, you know, I'm pregnant. Uh, I need someone to support me. Please don't put him away. Like, it was it was appealing to their sense of empathy. Mm, how'd the baby do? She wasn't pregnant. Yeah. <laughs> That's, okay. She was, she was one of his sex workers. So, like I said, he had a tough life, certainly a very tough start, but he also caught breaks, and he had people who gave a shit about him along the way, though he would often squander those relationships. He chose, however, to focus only on the negative and deal it back to the world in kind. And, like, just refuse at every turn any chance to take responsibility or contribute to anything positive. Mm Mm-hmm. Several months later, Leona uh, married Charlie so he could avoid further charges of trafficking women across state lines, and she was now actually pregnant with his baby. By the end of the year, he'd be arrested multiple more times. It was the trafficking charge that stuck. He loves doing things across state lines, Um, whether it's women, whether it's cars. I'm tired of being here. Let's be over there. Hey. In hopes of avoiding her own prison time, Leona would testify in front of a federal grand jury in L.A. that Charlie had indeed taken her from California to New Mexico to turn tricks. This testimony guaranteed Charlie would return to prison, and he was extradited to California and sentenced to 10 years for the check forgery in the United States Penitentiary on McNeil Island in the Puget Sound of Washington. Aren't there more people in California? You couldn't just find <laughs> you couldn't just find your tricks there. Yeah. Also California's big. Why are you going across why are you going to New Mexico? I don't know. Charlie was now only 26 years old, but had already spent over half of his life in some form of legal custody or another. A new inspiration inspired a new inspiration appeared for Charlie at McNeil, the bloated, creepo sci-fi author L. Ron Hubbard, oh. whose Dianetics provided yet more teachings that the burgeoning sociopath would incorporate into his future cult-leading ways. That makes a lot of sense, actually. Yes. Scientology, my friends. Charles Manson incorporated the original tenets of Scientology into his own beliefs, 
or at least what he said were his beliefs, and they helped him control his future followers. So like multiple lives and all that kind of neo-theosophy bullshit? Yep. And one of these beliefs was the idea that you are an immortal spiritual being. There it is. A god, in other words. And Charlie Manson certainly felt like the god of his own world. Lucky for him, because the hits kept on coming. Leona filed for divorce in August 1963. Um, Back in early 1961, she'd given birth to their son, Charles Luther Manson. But there's no record that Charlie ever met his second child, and nothing else is known about the mysterious Charles Luther. It sounds like she's out of the stable at this point as well. Yeah. Well, he's in prison. And for all we know, Charles Luther is uh, still out there living his life. Hopefully, no one ever finds out who he is, because I feel like that would be a miserable situation. Charlie was living his life to the best of his abilities in 1964, when he met another inspiration, McNeil's most notorious inmate, Alvin Creepy Carpus. This is someone you want to get involved with, for (laughs) sure. Carpus was a member of the Barker Gang in the 1930s, imprisoned in 1936, and transferred to McNeil after doing time at Alcatraz. There was something that Charlie wanted to learn from Carpus, and it wasn't criminal. The elder was known to be an accomplished steel guitar player, and music was one of the few things Charlie actually cared about. Charlie approached the older man to ask for some lessons, and Carpus obliged. He was bored. I mean, you know, what else is there to do? There's not that many people asking you how to play your lap steel. (laughs) This reintegration into playing music dovetailed perfectly into Charlie discovering the biggest inspiration the biggest inspirations in his life of all, bigger than Scientology, bigger than Carnegie, hell, even bigger than God. The British Invasion. In early 1964, Charlie and much of the rest of the world heard the music of the Beatles on the radio for the first time. And he was into this because in 1964, it was like, you know, I want to hold your hand. Yeah. Well, that was that was the biggest hit. Yeah. But it was new. Like, it seems so sweet and innocent, us listening to it. But that was like, holy shit, what is this? And we talked a lot about the Beatles on our Paul is Dead episode. But there was really no overstating the influence they had then and still have now. And the incredible cultural shift their music helped to start. They were so famous, even at the start of their careers in 1964, that their music permeated even the thick walls of McNeil Island Prison right into the ears of Charlie Manson. Their music, it seems, was what Charlie had been waiting for all his life, but had never known he had been missing. Even more important than the music, though, it was their fame that truly captivated Charlie. The level of adulation the Beatles received was absolutely insane. I mean, you know, the girls screaming and passing out and crying... I don't think we've, we know anything like that nowadays. Probably because people, there are more famous people nowadays. Yeah, there's just, f- culture is just more fractured. Yeah. There's more than three channels. The attention-obsessed Charlie realized that that kind of love, obsession, was what he wanted. Fame. If they could do it with guitars at that, which he knew how to play, <laughs> why of. couldn't he? And so Charlie found his ultimate goal, at least until that goal shifted sometime before the summer of 1969. His ultimate goal was to become a star. A rock star. Mm Mm-hmm. In May 1966, Charlie was transferred back to Terminal Island, and in March 1967, he was paroled at the age of 32. 
He had a new plan for his life and a clean slate to work off. He hadn't seen his mother since she she remarried finally to a good man in October 1965. And they had fought about um, her adopting a child who she had named Nancy. Charlie was just pissed that she hadn't spent the adoption fees to buy him a guitar. (laughs) She made a steal, Mom. Uh, and after October 1965, aside from one unpleasant meeting, Kathleen and Charlie never saw each other again. Charlie was re-entering society with little knowledge of the real world, aside from the pop culture that was able to permeate the imposing prison walls. He had been betrayed by the women he had entrusted with his heart, first and repeatedly by his mother, despite her attempts to straighten him out, then by both of his wives, who divorced him and absconded with his children. He began this new period of his life in a swirl of misogyny, anger, manipulation, the Beatles, and obsession with fame. It was a dangerous cocktail that would only become more volatile once Charlie reached the hippie mecca of Haight-Ashbury in San Francisco, California, at the height of the 60s counterculture movement. Here, among all the flower children, a monster would prowl the streets, gathering followers devoted to his worship, readying them for a gruesome absolution. And the world would never be the same. So next week, we'll talk about Charlie's time at the apex of the hippie movement, the creation of his family cult, his bizarre association with surf rock band The Beach Boys, and how all of these moments and meetings coalesced into the horrific crime spree that brought an end to the free-loving 60s and jump-started the darker crime-obsessed years of the 1970s. And we'll also be having father of the pod, Paul Ferrante, back on the show. Um, Well, I mean, he was alive for this, so he probably remembers it. But the Beach Boys happened to be his favorite band. He knows quite a lot about them. And um, this weird combination of this very innocent, uh, sugary-seeming band and their music and this just the absolute darkness and evil that is Charles Manson is just such an interesting topic. Um, so we're gonna we're gonna talk to Dad about that next week and talk a, a little bit about how the Beach Boys got involved with him and even how one of his songs was recorded by the band. And I just heard it on Sirius XM recently. So they're they're playing it. Well, it was like a Sirius XM limited channel of Beach Boys songs. There's only so many songs to play. You got to get Cease to Exist in there. And they changed Never his Never Learn Not to Love is the real song. Yeah, they changed his weird like stream of consciousness lyrics, right? Yes, but n- not too many spoilers. We'll get into it next week. It's a really fascinating story. There's a lot of six degrees of separation that's more like one degree of separation in this story. And it really perfectly encapsulates just that heady time of this countercultural movement and how it all sort of devolved into darkness and chaos with Vietnam and with these murders and how pop culture was affected first with the people in Hollywood, but also just America and the world as a whole. Well, uh, let's go surfing now. Everybody's learning how. Come on a safari with us and father of the pod, Paul Ferrante, next week. Mm-hmm. True terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events. On our podcast, Disturbed, Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life 
on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there. You know what time it is. It's Crying Saucers. So yes, we've been offline for a bit and we are now two weeks into a brave new post-disclosure world. (laughs) Post-disclosure! After the much-anticipated UFO hearings of July 26th, blew the doors off of decades of government conspiracy and cover-up. And Air Force officer and former intelligence official David Grush Grush, uh, revealed once and for all that we are not alone. Or did he reveal that? Well, you could be the judge. (laughs) Yeah, I've got thoughts. According to Grush's testimony, this all started in 2019 when he was asked by the guys in charge of the Pentagon UFO report to identify all classified programs he knew about that related to the task force's mission. Back then, he worked at the National Reconnaissance Office, which is where they run all the spy satellites. Super low stress job. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, <laughs> he, he looks like he's been under some stress mm. when you just look at his, the look of his eyes. <laughs> The insane eyes, like he, Charles Manson. He has the, the eyes of every uh, UFO whistleblower, but we continue. Mm-hmm. Okay. In late July, Grush testified before Congress that he was, quote, informed in the course of his official duties of a multi-decade UAP, that's uh, Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon, crash retrieval and reverse engineering program to which Grush was denied access. So that's what we're talking about, the full Roswell, New Mexico, Area 51 type shit, recovering alien spacecraft. Trying to rebuild them based on the debris. Yeah, uh, alien corpses and bunkers, the whole thing. Bodies, yes. When asked how such a program was funded, Grush blamed a misappropriation of funds at a level above congressional oversight. So very much shadow government kind of vibes. But no more detail than that. That's, no. Maybe he doesn't know. Yeah, no, he, yeah, I'm He doesn't sure. seem like it's the finance guy. High-level stuff. He said he didn't have access to this program. Grush estimated that the U.S. government has known about non-human life. He doesn't like the term extraterrestrial or alien. Because that would be weird. Since at least the 1930s. To be clear, Grush hasn't seen a UFO But he totally knows multiple people who have and who received non-specific injuries in the process. And people he's interviewed say they've recovered non-human biologics from crashed UAPs. The Department of Defense says their own investigation hasn't found, quote, any verifiable information to substantiate the claims 
that any programs regarding the possession or reverse engineering of extraterrestrial materials have existed in the past or exist currently. I love how pithy they keep it. It's catchy. Yeah. The Associated Press cleverly notes that this answer does sidestep the possibility they've retrieved craft of, of terrestrial origin. So, USOs. Or, um, you know, it also doesn't mention bodies. doesn't mention biological, you know. So, Non-human biologics. biologics. Grush claims that he's been the victim of a brutal and very unfortunate campaign of retaliation since he stepped forward with unspecified professional and personal effects. The panel also spoke to David Fravor, one of the Navy pilots who caught the video of the famous... Tic Tac UFO. Oh, we love the Tic Tac. Mm-hmm. Popping fresh. Freaky little Tic Tac. So you just Google. <laughs> that's that's Poe. Poe's a freaky little Tic Tac. Yeah, what, what flavor is he? Oh. Cinnamon. Cocoa, generously. He's spicy. So just Google this um, Tic Tac UFO footage. Uh, and he said that the technology he and his team saw defies all logical explanation. The seriousness of the UFO threat is apparently one of the few things lawmakers can agree on right now, as Senator senators from both parties were talking Marco Rubio on the right and Chuck Schumer on the left, tacked an amendment onto this year's defense spending bill called the UAP Disclosure Act, demanding UFO-related information be considered top priority for declassification and setting up a special place in the National Archives to collect UFO information. Oh, so they can set aside a closet for that or something. I love that Marco Rubio is such a UFO nerd. I just love it. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, there's Little a, Marco. It's a short list, so... <laughs> So whether Grush is a brave bastion of truth or just some crazy guy or some mixture, um, it does seem like he's helping to make some change. Now, whether this is an instance of this, the government saying aliens are real, uh, which is what much of TikTok and social media has boiled it down to, it appears the situation's a bit more nuanced. It uh, doesn't seem like there was any confirmation of anything, just that there was a hearing where someone said something. Like, it's one, one guy claims, lots of people have claimed that the government yes. has... Uh, this is uh, just, like, the most official claim ever made, maybe. Right. Now, what what is interesting, and what I think the lawmakers are responding to, or want to look like they're responding to anyway, is stuff like that Tic Tac, or the another guy who spoke, who I think is the guy who took the video of that, like, big geometric kind of cube shape over the... Yeah. Um, uh, battleship. Mm-hmm. Uh, those videos seem pretty legit, and the government seems to mm-hmm. <laughs> think they're pretty legit. And mm-hmm. uh, there's something to investigate there. Y- yeah, and whether or not they're aliens, they're they're scary. But I, I bet uh, I bet there are private companies who have technology that the mm-hmm. government doesn't know about, and I bet that's something the government should be concerned about. Certainly. Yeah. But either way, I don't want aliens to show themselves right now, if ever. I'm tired of news. I want things to be boring for a good long time. I don't want news. No more. Boring um, news. I'm tired. Well, I mean, technically we're too late on this. Or two weeks late on this. This is old. <laughs> if you'd like to read more of my own thoughts on the uniquely American obsession with UFOs, head over to Yahoo News, where journalist Garen Flowers included some quotes on behalf of the Ain't It Scary podcast in the article, which is titled, Why Americans Are Uniquely Obsessed with Aliens. We'll include a link to the article on our various social medias. Head on over and give Garen a few clicks. 
If anything, you'll be supporting me reaching my ultimate goal of becoming one of those Discovery Plus Supernatural show talking heads saying, wow, about footage of orbs. Yeah, if Carrie can make her living on paranormal (laughs) caught on camera, a dream will have been achieved. And Sean can laugh at it as he is wont to do. Well, you don't think they'd want to talk to me too? I think so, but you would laugh. So uh, as I wrote here, and um, John, you really nailed me down, paranormal caught on camera, here we come. (laughs) But P.S. Any writers or uh, TV shows listening, we're available for quotes, so get at us. Um, No matter what planet you're from. (sighs) It's a post-disclosure world, care. I know, but I'm tired. That's it for this episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ain't It Scary and check out our website at ain'titscary.com. You can support the show by supporting our sponsors and becoming a patron at www.patreon.com slash ain'titscary. You can call us and leave a message at our Google Voice number 203-666-5529 and please subscribe to the show and throw us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and also now on Spotify. We'll be forever grateful. Yeah, I mean, six stars if you can manage it. Um, <laughs> thank you very much. And thanks to those of you already joining us on our top couple of tiers on Patreon. We have a nice little family uh, over there, including Nate Curtis, Sean O'Donnell, Jared Chamberlain, Maria Ferrante, Robin McCabe, Comfy Mike, Alex Nakutis, Ryan Regan, Christy Atchison, Kate Pope, Haley, Aussie, Sean Downs, Ryan, Enrique, Derek, and welcome back to the squad era um, so excited to have you back, and uh, you'll get through that episode backlog in no time. Uh, so welcome. Absolutely. See you next Thursday. Shookered by Sean and Carrie McCabe, music by Kyle Ryan. You can find Kyle at his YouTube channel, Music is a Verb. Ain't It Scary has been brought to you by Killer Podcasts and is a production of Longboy Media. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not. It's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.